Go ahead, grab a seat. Great to see you all. For those who don't know me, because there's some unfamiliar faces, my name's Kyle. I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel. Great to have you all here and those online. Great to have you with us as well. Uh, Today we're going to be celebrating family in a lot of ways. One of the ways is we've come back to having one service. So as one church, we're at one service right now. It's great to see so many people. Some of you probably don't even recognize each other after the last couple of years, which is great. So take time today uh, to spend time just getting to reconnect and spend time with one another after the service. Be great to have you. But not only are we going to celebrate family through just being together, but we're going to be focusing on a passage of scripture today that's all about family. But before we look at the passage, I want to ask you this question. What does family mean to you? What does it mean to be family? How do you define your family? It's an interesting question when you stop to think about it. One of the things that's been really confusing for my daughters has been the people we call their uncles and aunts. And the reason being, we have some family uncles and aunts and some other uncles and aunts. We have Uncle Nick and Barbara Jean, which is my brother-in-law and his girlfriend. We have Uncle Chris and Auntie Amanda and the cousins. That's my brother and sister-in-law and their kids. But then we have Uncle Calvin and Auntie Tina and those cousins. And that gets weird because suddenly it's Amy's cousin and his wife and their kids, but they're not brothers and sisters, but their uncle and aunt. Last night, we just spent some time with Uncle Paul and Auntie Krista. They've been Uncle Paul and Auntie Krista before the kids were born, but there is no blood relation. But still, we consider them as much of our family as we do all the rest that we're related to by blood or by marriage. We, we all have different ways of defining what our family unit is, but we love everyone we consider a part of our family. In fact, in our family, we love them so much that they can't all be together at the same time. And the actual reason for that, uh, somehow we became godparents to seven different kids amongst all those aunts and uncles. And I'm afraid that if something were to happen, my family of four would go to 11 way too quickly. (laughs) I mean, I love them all. I'd take them all in, but please, Lord, not all at once. You know, it's just one of those things. We love them, but they're her family because some of them are family by blood, some by adoption. It's interesting when you think about how people define family. And today, as we're coming to a passage of scripture, we're going to be looking at some different definitions of family. Different cultures, different people, different times through history have led people to have a different definition of family. In ancient Israel, the the word family encompassed a lot more than just your immediate family or your extended family with aunties and uncles, cousins. It went beyond that to include your whole tribe that you came from. Beyond that, in certain circumstances, you would call your whole nation your family. And this wasn't just some words that were spoken to affirm something that they wanted as like a cultural ideal. This was worked out in practice. In ancient Israel, you worked for the benefit of your whole family. Your goal was to see everyone who you were related to, even at a far distance, prosper. And they would set up all these different ways of living and being just to make that happen. 
For instance, there's an old custom that if your brother were to die, it was your responsibility if you were a man to marry his wife and to adopt his children to make sure that she wouldn't be left out and the kids wouldn't be disenfranchised. They set up these people who were called kinsmen redeemers. Their job was that if something happened in the family, they would come take care of it. If someone got in trouble or in danger with someone outside of the family, they'd come sort it out. Say, for instance, you got into a a whole load of debt. What you would do if you couldn't get back what was originally yours and your family's, you'd go to your kinsman redeemer, you'd ask them for some help, and they would go on your behalf and pay off your debt. And this wasn't a situation that would create bad blood. This was just a situation that was acknowledged so that you could see the benefit of your people. Why I bring that up is because we're going to see something that Jesus says today that is going to be quite shocking. And to some of us in our culture and the way we define family, it might not seem that big a deal. But when we understand some of those cultural undercurrents, we'll see that Jesus said one of the most shocking things that anyone in his culture could have heard. In today's passage, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 50, we're going to, re, we're going to see Jesus reframe the idea of what it means to be a part of God's family. And this, this has changed the nation of Israel. It's changed culture through time and space, and hopefully it will change us in how we consider and approach what we would call the family of faith. And so if you've got your Bible, follow along with me in it. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screens. But let's read Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 to 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. So someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied to this person and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers. Pointing to his disciples in the room, he said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a provocative statement. This is a unique situation. Jesus has just been going around. He's been sharing what it looks like for him to be the king of God's kingdom, what it looks like for him to sort of establish God's kingdom on earth. He's been going around sharing the message of of who he is and a better way to live with him. When all of a sudden, in the midst of all these interactions he's having with the teachers of the religion of the time, with the people on the street in his day, as he's doing all this, his actual physical birth family shows up. And Mary comes, and she's standing outside of this place with Jesus' stepbrothers, and they say, hey, we want to talk to you. Jesus' response is simple. Uh, You're not my family. The people in this room are my family. Now, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye initially to us in this, and that's because Matthew is writing in such a way that he wants to paint a picture of who Jesus is, and he wants people to understand that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom and that there is a way of living which ensures that you're a part of that kingdom. 
But fortunately, we have more than one gospel. And actually, this story takes place also in the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of John. And in those accounts of Jesus' life, we see a little bit more uh, of the heart and humanity behind Jesus as he comes to this. We see that there's actually a sort of family feud that has broiled up in the midst of the story. Jesus has gone to become a rabbi, a teacher, and that was actually a really noble thing in their culture. This is something that you would say is what you want your children to aspire for. Well, today we might say, hey, we want our kids to be a doctor or a lawyer or someone who's going to make a lot of money. Back then they would say, we really want our kid to be a rabbi. They're going to be a teacher. They're going to be someone who the whole community looks up to. That is until Jesus started teaching what he had to say. Then suddenly the family was going, "Um, we don't want you to say that. Jesus, you're, you're embarrassing us a little bit. What, what are you doing challenging those other Pharisees and reputable people in the community? You're giving us a bad name. Jesus is from an honor and shame culture where your family identity and your relationship to your family has to do with how well you bring them honor or how much shame you bring upon them. At first, he's bringing them a lot of honor in becoming a rabbi, but suddenly they think that it is shameful to be associated with Jesus. You know how we don't talk about Bruno? They don't talk about Jesus. No, 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 no. They start to chase Jesus out, and we actually see in one account in Mark's gospel that Jesus' half-brothers say, Jesus, you've got to get out of town for the sake of our family. You're ruining our reputation. Just take off, man. Get out of here. Now suddenly they've come and we don't know all the circumstances that are going on and necessarily what's in their mind, but we can assume that it's going to be a little bit more of the same. Jesus' family, while they once were hopeful and that Mary had been given a message from one of God's angels, there was this hope of who Jesus would be, but now they're starting to wonder and they're starting to stop it. And so we assume probably that that's what's taking place. And so when they come into this space, we see something different. Jesus begins to turn and question them. Are you really my family? Are you really considering what it looks like to be in the family of God? And so with those gathered around, he says, these people aren't. Those people standing at the door, they're not my family because they're not in on what makes someone a member of my family. But these people gathered around and he points to his disciples, these followers who are learning from him and not just studying under him, but trying to be apprentices of the whole of his life, trying to look like him, live like him, act like him. He says, these are the ones who really get it. These are the ones who really know what it looks like to be a part of my family. And he explains it all in verse 50 simply. He says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As Jesus has gone around and said that I'm the king of God's kingdom and I have come to to bring you into that kingdom and bring you into that family, you have to understand who's going to be in and who's going to be out. The people who are going to be in 
are the ones who live like family. It's not bloodline or history, it's action. One writer, a guy named Michael Green, wrote this. He wrote, It is impossible to be religious like the Pharisees and still not be a part of the kingdom. It is possible to be physically related to the Messiah himself and still not be part of the kingdom of God. Religious practices and religious pedigree are utterly inadequate to bring anyone into God's kingdom. There needs to be an acknowledgement of who Jesus is and a determined decision to follow him. Jesus says, if you really want to be a part of my kingdom, if you really want to experience the flourishing life that I have been teaching you about, that we read about in places like the Sermon on the Mount, what you have to do is come to a place where you acknowledge that I'm the authority in this family and that you have to follow the way that I lead. If you've been with us for a while, or perhaps you've just read on your own the Sermon on the Mount, you might remember a word picture that's written in there. It's this picture of two paths for living. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, we see that Jesus paints more of this picture. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, yet only a few will find it. There's been this common teaching, if you've grown up in the church or spend time studying this stuff over a long time, that there's been this sort of emphasis on the numbers of people on the road. There's one way towards God, which is true, and there's one way that isn't, which is, or there's lots of ways that aren't, which is true, and there's going to be fewer people who follow and find Jesus than those who won't. These are all true things, but unfortunately, one of the things that we've missed in that teaching of Jesus, when we bring it back to what Jesus says here, is the fact that Jesus isn't just talking about one path to heaven and one path not, but the way in which we get there. The narrowness and the width of the path that Jesus once talked about were all about the fact that there is one very specific way in which we can walk and live our lives which will bring us into God's family. There's all sorts of ways that we can go, things we can try to be, places we can try to go to hear a message that are going to take us to everywhere but God's family. Jesus wants us to know that living as a member of his family is a narrow way of living. There are certain rhythms, there are certain practices, there are certain aspects of our lives that need to be reshaped to be a part of that family. It has nothing to do with our pedigree or our stature. It has nothing to do with our race or our gender. It has nothing to do with our political affiliation, socioeconomic status, or where we have come from in the past. Everything hinges upon the way in which we live. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, wrote this, that there is a secret to an easy yoke 
That is, to learn from Christ how to live our total lives, how to invest all of our time and our energies of mind and body as he did. We must learn how to follow his preparations, the disciplines for life in God's rule that enabled him to receive his father's constant and effective support while doing his will. You might remember in the chapter before where Jesus has this encounter with his physical family, Jesus has said to people, are you tired? Are you burnt out? Are you beat up on trying to figure out life? Then come with me, and I'm going to put a yoke upon you, and it's going to be easy and good. And as you walk with me, you will find the rest and peace that you need. All along, as Jesus has been teaching, as we've been studying through this series called Kingdom Come, we've been seeing that Jesus has been building a case for what it looks like to be a part of his family. And it is this, that we simply live the way that God wants us to. We simply need to live the way that God wants us to. No, don't get, a, don't get me wrong. The, the way that we come to our salvation that we sang about is through God's grace that he enables us to have faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus came to not just live to teach and show a better way, but he came to die on a cross so that all of our sin and our rebellion and the wrong way of living that we have lived up to now, for that the penalty for that, the consequences of it could go to the grave with him. That is how we come to our salvation. But he says that family is more than salvation. It's a way of living. And the way that we know our faith in God is true, the way that we know that we have fully accepted and received God's salvation in us is by the way that we live. See, faith isn't an intellectual thing. It's not just an emotional thing. It's a way of being. It's meant to be lived out. Our lives are meant to be treated responsibly and effectively. We're supposed to approach things objectively all as we walk this path. And what I find fascinating is that this was a an experience and a change of thinking that even Jesus' own family had to go through. In that group that stood outside of where Jesus was teaching was Mary and one of his half-brothers, James. James, at first, was the younger brother of Jesus who really had an issue with his big brother. He looked at him and went, you're a disgrace. You, you had so much to live up to and and, and, and you're failing us. You're, you're giving our family a bad name. That was until he saw what Jesus came and accomplished on the cross. And after that, he had this change of heart, what we might call a sort of conversion experience, where he went, whoa, what Jesus was saying all along, I was missing out on. What Jesus was showing is actually a better way because look where it has led to. 
And James has a total change of heart, and he becomes so passionate about this that he actually writes a letter to the early church about the way that we should live because James heard Jesus here. He heard Jesus say that being a part of God's family is about the way we live, and that inspired him to write this in James chapter 2, verse 24. He said, You see that a person will not be considered right with God by faith alone but also by what they do. James began to understand it's not just about thinking right. It's not just about being a part of a Christian family or participating in certain religious practices like going to church on the holy day. It's it's none of those things, but it's actually about the way that we embody living. All along in the teachings of Jesus, he wants us to understand this. Do you want to know if you're a member of my family? Then look at the fruit of your life. Look at how you live, how you act, how you behave towards me and other people. We'll see the teachings of Jesus. He says, what are the two greatest things? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the other thing? Love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. Live it out. This shows it. When you can display that, you will know that you're a member of my family. So if someone were to come up to you today and ask, are you a member of God's family? What would they see? What would they think? What would their experience be What would their understanding be based on what you look like? Our attitudes and our actions shape the acknowledgement of whether we're adopted children of God. So we got to do God's will. Now that is a big category. (laughs) And I can't come even close to trying to cover that all today. We're all going to be long since dead by the time we're done. (laughs) I mean, there's so much to study in God's Word. There's so much to understand as as Jesus tried to live. And, And one of the great things about God is He doesn't demand perfection, but He wants progress. And so we consider, okay, then what are we going to do? How can we start to frame this? And for us together as a church today, one of the things I want to bring back us back to is this vision that we've had for our church over this next season. Because I think this accurately reflects how we can in part live out God's will. This fall we brought forward to the church three statements and they were this. That we want to seek Jesus over everything. That we want to seek unity over division. And that we want to foster connection, not consumption. These three statements, in a lot of ways, I think, give a perfect picture of what it looks like to live under God's will. And so let's start with this idea of Jesus over everything. As we read, right, Jesus came to be a teacher. He came to show a better way. But in doing so, he said, there's going to be only one way. 
The only way that you're going to achieve your flourishing in life, the only way that the world is going to get better is if you choose to follow me over everything else. And one of the great things is Jesus didn't just speak this with words, but he really lived it out. He really lived a life shaped on different patterns and practices than many of us would normally live. And that was, in fact, not just a happenstance, not just a fun side project, but a way to show his people a pattern of living. One thing that we've long since lost since Jesus' day is this understanding of what a disciple and a rabbi's life looked like. There was this understanding that if you were to apprentice under a great teacher, you were meant to adopt the whole of their life. I I know a pastor who went to Israel a number of years ago, and he tells this great story. uh, As he was going on this sort of trek to sort of discover the Holy Land, they went with this guide, and one of the guides was a rabbi, and he said, I'm going to teach you what it looks like to live as a disciple. And so he walked along a path from one site to the other. And the people sort of sat and wondered, well, what does this have to do with living as a disciple? But along the path, the rabbi started to do a few things. He picked a leaf from a tree. He drank some water. He stopped and he prayed. And then when they finally ended at their next destination. He asked them, who picked the leaf? Who drank some water? And who prayed? A few people drank some water because it was hot. (laughs) They were walking along the way, but no one picked the leaf or prayed. And he said, what it looks like to be a disciple is to mimic someone perfectly. The reason why I drank water is because I was thirsty. And I knew that if we didn't drink water, we would arrive at this next destination not able to fully experience the benefit of it because we'd be hot and tired. The reason I picked that leaf is because we're about to open our Bibles to a passage that, we're, uh, we're, uh, G- that Jesus taught at this very place. And I want you to have a keepsake to remember and to help you understand the words of Jesus. The reason I stopped and pray is because all along the way we want to do this honoring God. And so he said, every one of you, go back. (laughs) And he sent everybody who didn't pick a leaf, who didn't drink the water, who didn't pray another mile back to go and do all of those things. And after they had done that, when they all returned and he began to teach, they started to realize why he did those things. We've lost that in our current identity of what it means to be a Christian. We've made it more about the things we think about than the way of being. If we truly want to be members of God's family, if we truly want our lives to reflect that of Jesus Christ, we have to do the things he did. And so I ask, do you have these patterns and practices built in your life? Do you stop and pray and bring God into every situation? Do you spend time reading his word regularly to understand what he has to say to you? And then do you go and live it out? 
Do you retreat from the busyness and noise of our society to places of silence and solitude to connect with God? There's many other disciplines that that we can participate in, but do you do those things to model your life after the plan that Jesus has laid before you? If you're not doing that, you have to start practicing it. And I would encourage you that it would be one of the greatest things that would benefit you. Our staff right now has been on a journey over the last number of weeks of going through a book together that's called uh, The Spiritual Disciplines of the, for the Christian Life. And, and in it is 10 different pra- spiritual practices that Jesus modeled. And one of the things that we are reminded of, we have over, I think we have 110 years of Christian faith experience between our four staff. And we still find week after week that there's more to learn and grow in as we practice spiritual disciplines. If you don't know where to go or how to participate, I'd encourage you to look at getting a copy of this. If you want to pick one up, I'll have one up here later today after the FM. There's one at the Connect Desk. If you can't afford one, we'll help buy one for you because we believe that this practice of reorienting the rhythms of our life will change not just us, but our world. The next thing we want to seek and that I would encourage you to consider in this period of time is after this statement that we have as a church that we will seek unity over division. We remember that Jesus comes and he says, I am king and I am establishing a kingdom. He's already taught up to this point that a kingdom that shoots at its own members will be a kingdom that falls. A good army can't be one that marches forward while they're fighting in the ranks. All the people have to be unified. I think this is increasingly becoming one of the markers that people of faith are losing to our secular culture. We're allowing our world to shape us by the way that it is uh, defining itself. Right now, you can't go anywhere where someone isn't drawing a line on a topic, on a way of living, on some political platform, whatever it might be, we live in an increasingly polarized world where everyone in every situation wants to draw a dividing line. Well, how's that turning out for society? Not too well. A kingdom against itself will fall. And so Jesus says, I want my people to be unified. I want them to grow together, and in that, we will see who's part of God's family. In that act and way of living, that is what will advance the mission of God. One of the last things Jesus did when he was with his disciples was gather them around and pray for them. And a part of that prayer was for unity. This is what he said. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then 
After we are unified, the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, as a church, we do have some strong doctrinal beliefs. We think there are some essentials to the Christian faith, but but beyond that, we are going to seek unity over division. There's places where good Bible-believing people will disagree, and they're all welcome here. But while we can manifest that as an organization, the thing that needs to go deeper is each one of us as individuals embracing that and living that in an increasingly polarized world. You want to know what a follower of Jesus looks like? They look like a person who's building bridges and mending gaps, not causing division in the world. This is what it looks like for us to be members of the family of God. And it's all for a purpose. We don't just do it to no end, which sometimes it can seem like when we're facing all the divisions that we face. We do it for the purpose, which is to show so people can know the glory of God. So that people can come into his family and experience more of what we've received from him. And make no mistake, it's a spiritual discipline. It's going to take a lot of effort and emphasis for us to live our lives this way. But as we do, we can trust in the promise that Jesus prayed over all of his people, which includes for us, that he will be glorified and that we will become more and more like him. And so as individuals, we need to seek Jesus over everything. We need to seek unity over division. And I believe that we need to look for connection not consumption. Jesus didn't come to consume. He didn't come to take what he could from the people on earth. Jesus had everything that he could need. Instead, what Jesus did is he came to foster community and connection. The point of his going to the cross was so people could be connected with God and experience the fullness of his presence now and for eternity. And likewise, then, God says, I do not call my people to consume. I call them to connect. We see this in what Jesus wants. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Connect with God. But also love your neighbor as yourself. Connect with them. Go out into all the world and make disciples. All of the things, all the commands, all the great teachings that Jesus gives his people are centered around connection, not consumption. When we even do things like come to a place of worship on a Sunday, we should not be here to consume. It's great. We're going to get lots of things out of other people, out of amazing worship. Hopefully as we study God's word, as we connect with one another in the hallways, as kids go upstairs, we are going to learn, we are going to grow, but that's not the attitude we come with. That's not the attitude we go with. We don't go to other people. We don't expect a healthy relationship to be, hey, give me everything you got so I can be a little bit better. Now, that's a toxic relationship in a person-to-person sort of sense. Why would we do that with any person, God, or others around us? Connection has such an incredible benefit. Not only in unity do we end up glorifying God, but does it carry us through and help us walk in a long, straight line. 
One of the things that I have been witness to over the last couple of years as church has felt destabilized, as our culture has made it, and, and the situations of our world have made it difficult to come into church, is that those who have sought connection have ended up the best. I have seen people who have decided to make life about consuming or about ignoring and rejecting every connection, and those are the people who have had the hardest time. Time and time again. I've seen people be destroyed in their mental health because of this. We've seen people in the community run to addiction because of this. We've seen people abandon a sense of faith because they have missed the message of Jesus. But I will tell you that those people I know who have pushed into connection, even when it's been difficult, even when it's been frustrating, even when they haven't seen eye to eye, are the people I know who have grown the most personally and spiritually. The patterns that Jesus has given us for these worlds are for our benefit and the benefit of those in the world around us. And so Jesus says, if you're a member of my family, this is the way that I want you to live. What would Jesus say if he looked at your life? Would he call you one of his brothers, sisters, sons, or daughters? Or would he say, that's not one of my people? They can stay on the outside. God has invited us into his family through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus has shown what it means for us to live in the way of his family. But what's next is up to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you speak to us through this. Holy Spirit, I pray the challenge and conviction of this wouldn't be coming from a place of, of shame or guilt or burden. But God, would we receive what you teach to us to, so that we understand that it's for our benefit, Lord, that it's an offer from you that you will take the burden off of, of, of trying to figure out how we can live, how we can make it into your kingdom, how we can be good people, how we can see our family and our personal lives succeed, how we can see our community flourish, would we recognize that you have eased the burden for us by showing us a greater way. God, I pray for everyone here who does not yet have that personal relationship with you. God, would they hear and know your love for them, that you went to the cross to die for everything that they've done wrong, for every uh, thing that has led them to a place of brokenness and hurt or harm. God, that you died for those things so that they would not have to live with the consequence of those things in light of eternity, but that they could today receive you by your grace and the faith that you offer to them, that they would know that there is a better way. And God, for all of us on that journey, I pray that you would give each and every one of us one more thing today that we can work on so that we can be more and more like you, so that we can show the faith that we have and hold to, that we can know that there is a better way.
And God, together as a church, would we show that for our world in our pursuit of you over everything as we seek unity together on that mission and around the person that you are, God, would people come to know your love for them? And would we be able to celebrate as your kingdom grows by more and more people entering into your family? God, we love you and we thank you that you are here with us. Now we turn things back to praise. We pray this all in your powerful name. Amen.